Chalable with Reload, and you're about to go on one heck of a journey listening to the Sassholes. Welcome to Sassholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are revenue ops with a edge. Jamie, Jason, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Today, our guest is Vinny Chalawa, has taken quite the nonlinear path growing businesses for the past two decades. Currently serves as head of sales and customer success with Reload. Prior to Reload, Vinny was EVP of client development at Collective, CRO with Symphony AI, GM of TextKernel North America, and like several of us here, held numerous leadership roles, domestic and abroad with career builder. Vinny is a proud Wisconsin Badger, go Bucky, who also managed to receive an MBA from the Stanford of Central Arizona, Arizona State University, before studying data mining at the actual Stanford. That's like the actual, that's not like the Phoenix. Let, like Phoenix the tree school. and all. You got it. Okay. All right. Before we get to you, Vinny, this episode's brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Hey, parents, athletes, get a doodle of your noodle, a brain map. Hey, man, the season's going on. The playoffs are happening. You got to have a baseline to compare it to in case something happens. Get a brain checkup now before the season's over. Schedule an appointment now at neuronoodle.com. You get knocked. You want to get back in the game. It takes 20 minutes to get the data you need to have a peace of mind to figure out if your kids should get back on the field. Carney. Dogs can't operate MRI machines, but cats can. Well, you I, used I a, that one. I had to look for it. Oh, did you I? used that one like five episodes ago. All right. Tell you what, stop looking for the perfect match. Use a lighter. Is that better? <laughs> Leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Shout outs. KG, you got any? I got a couple. Um, I just wanted to say happy birthday to uh, Anthony Ian Arino. Uh, he is uh, a legendary sales leader, sales uh, sales speaker out there. And then uh, I want to congratulate two ex or current ZipRecruiter people, uh, Matthew Toll. Uh, he just started a new position as a sales manager of the existing accounts team over there at Zip. And uh, congratulations to Justin Hayden for starting a new position as strategic account executive two at ZipRecruiter. That's one louder. How many levels are there? Probably goes to 11. 11? Probably so goes you can to have a, So there's 11 pay plans? Something like that. Oof. Interesting. I don't know. I don't work there anymore. I'm just asking. Carney, what do you got? Um, I want to give a shout out to our, our very famous Patrick Kent. Um, he just took another job away from where were they at before that we were banned? About I, I don't know, but can we can we put right. his well, podcast back up? Yeah, no. OK. Uh, He's now at Sendengo uh, or something like that. However you say that name. Just wanted to give him a shout out, especially since we were banned from talking about phenom people um, when they, uh, him and Justin Jackson both got on. Can't say his name. Mm -hmm. um, another shout out is uh, Alex Nagivan. Um, 
He just recently took a position as VP of RevOps over at a company in Jacksonville. Um, so congrats, he just left ADP for about, he's been there about four years. So I think yesterday was the starting, uh, it's the first day on the new job. So congrats to him. I got uh, Lori Fitzgerald from Dell. She ran the Chicago Marathon. I think she did it like three and a half. She's going to Boston, baby. Way to go, Lori Fitzgerald. Yeah. That's a big deal. I mean, that's pretty fast, I think. Yeah, I could do, do it probably two days. I could probably do two and a half hours in my uh, Schwinn. Vinny, you, you, you got us on one of our better shows. I love it. Yeah, not really. So, so Vinny, how do you know KG? KG Vinny. Yeah, so I was introduced to KG from some of his, uh, I, I guess, f- fellow leaders at ZipRecruiter that I'd worked at previous with at CareerBuilder. And at the time, I was uh, incubating a company with Symphony AI, which is a VC fund that has really focused on purchasing companies in the uh, traditional industry space, but leverage AI to kind of take them to the next levels. And so they've um, probably now got a couple billion under assets with the, the portfolio. And we were focused on a recruitment space company. And so I was directed to KG to say, hey, this guy's the expert in inside sales, ramping that side up. I've done a lot on the enterprise side. And so I thought, why would I not want to learn from somebody that's in the space, get some feedback, not only on the business model, but also on the sales model as well. And we've stayed in touch via text, talking about various opportunities and things like that. And so it's uh, one of those relationships that we've been able to maintain. Well, and, and one of the things I like most about Vinny is that he's, you've got such a diverse background. You know, you're, you're really this, you're really a utility guy that, that has been, you know, utilized in so many different aspects from, you know, domestic sales to international operations uh, for discrete products and, and customer success now and sales underneath your, you know, your leadership and, and uh, you know, that kind of, I've always been impressed by your, your abilities to do that. And of course, I think I tried to get you to ZipRecruiter uh, a couple of times in uh, some types of roles, but, uh, but you're, you're the Swiss army knife uh, out there that's that's just super respectable. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because usually one of the first questions I get asked if people look at my LinkedIn profile is like, you're running sales and you have studied data mining, like what is wrong with you? Uh, and and the, it's a good transition because uh, I used to work in baseball and I can you know add into that. We were talking a little bit about baseball earlier. And so, you know, played baseball my whole life and was obsessed pitcher. Um, the owner of collateral litament is a multiple billion dollar ligament in the body. So Tommy John is one of the most prominent problems. And so I had this brilliant idea that if I could figure out what causes or leads to Tommy John surgery happening or that ulnar collateral ligament going afray, I'd be in business. Wouldn't have to do anything anymore because I'd be able to figure it out. So I thought I should probably figure out this data mining thing that's up and coming to figure out if that can help lead me down this path of having success here. Ultimately, what I found was that even if you understand how to do something with the data, if you don't have the data, because many of the prospects that are pitchers are coming from countries where they're not exactly tracking in a, a deep-rooted document, you know, the distance from the tip of your pinky to the middle of your palm or the angle that it takes when you, you know, exit from the, the, the mound. And so, you know, it was one of those things was just a good learning experience, but definitely the only sales guy that was part of that process for sure. We got a lot of new leaders, new sales reps, you know, people starting their career, 
give, give us a roadmap of uh, how you've gotten where you're at today. Where'd you start at and where'd you wind up? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is part of the reason KG wanted me to join is because it, my, my path is not exactly linear to say the least. So I started my career working in baseball when I realized that, you know, a, a guy that can't throw, uh, you know, 80 miles an hour that's left uh, handed is not going to be a professional pitcher. And so I thought, like many uh, former athletes do, hey, I'll work in baseball. It'll be this most glamorous thing ever. And so I started working in the North Woods League, which is a summer collegiate league for the Madison Mallards championship year while I was there. Uh, started as an intern. And when you start as an intern, you earn exactly $0 and you are tasked with doing everything. And so one day it would be pulling the tarp. The next it was writing a press release. The next it was trying to sell the local cable company on, hey, do you want to have uh, the mascot uh, fly out of the, a plane and land on field as part of your promotion? And so that actually progressed into a real job where I was running PR and marketing. But part of that was actually selling the sponsorships. And so when you work in something like minor league baseball, summer collegiate baseball, you're forced to do a little bit of everything. And so you get an MBA through actual experience where you're exposed to just so many different parts of business, where you've got to understand the financials of how it works. You got to understand how to sell. You got to understand the marketing. You got to understand the PR and you got to understand the web design because you don't have some massive team to be able to help build the website, keep things going. Uh, so you're this true Swiss army knife. But I love the sponsorship sales. It's one of those things that I'm always excited about. I worked for Verizon Wireless in high school and love just selling, helping customers find whatever they're looking for. And so sales has kind of always been in my blood is kind of the thing that I like the most. And so ended up taking, uh, considering a job with the Arizona Diamondbacks, which brought me out to Scottsdale. And, you know, at that point in time, get a phone call from some company, career builders. Well, I'm like, career builders, the monkey commercials? Yeah, the monkey commercials. We're starting this <laughs> office in Scottsdale. So Pete, you may have been involved in that to some extent when that office opened up in Old Town Scottsdale. And they convinced me that, hey, this notion of working 40 hours a week, it's a reality. I was thinking, wait a minute, you don't have to work what? 100 hours a can, week. Can I just ask you a question? Why didn't that escalator ever work? Uh, you know what? I w All I know is the best business model in the world is whoever that escalator company is, because that thing was constantly under work. And I'm sure that was being billed at 300 bucks an hour for uh, 24 <laughs> Continue. <laughs> so I was convinced that, uh, you know, this selling job was something that could be an actual career. And so I actually opted and said, you know what, I'm going to take a flyer on this because sales is such a good introduction to business. Because what other vertical within a company are you able to understand so many different entities, what's going on, solve problems? I love solving problems. And so I started in a uh, you know, pretty entry-level sales role, worked my way up into enterprise sales at CareerBuilder, a number of leadership roles, started out this solution uh, architecting group with Shillow, Elizabeth Shillow, shout out Shillow, amazing leader. Uh, and... That was basically, you know, the ability to take all these new products that we were selling and communicate them in a cohesive way across our organization. Mm -hmm. And from there, I started, you know, uh, helped start up the healthcare division, moved back to Chicago for that, eventually came back to Phoenix, and then got a phone call one day from, uh, I, think, I think it was probably Farhan Yasin that gave me a call, who's our president of international at the time. And he said, hey, uh, you've done a lot of stuff here, and I, I understand you're pretty operationally minded. It seems like you've got some semblance of a background in engineering. You've done the sales thing. You seem to communicate, uh, and the president of Europe speaks pretty highly of you. 
what would you think about running international operations? I'm like, well, I don't know anything about international operations. Uh, I certainly don't know anything about, uh, you know, the, the, the nuances of what makes a business unique in Greece versus the UK versus Sweden. Mm. Where, where's this job? Do I have to move? Yeah, you got to move to Edinburgh, Scotland. And so at the time, I had a fairly newborn baby. My daughter was probably, you know, 10 months old at the time. And so I had the conversation with the wife and say, hey, do you want to uproot and move to some place we've never been? And eventually uh. that became a yes. And the next thing you know, it's history. So we were there. And then from there, we progressed back into the States to run Tax Kernel, which is a product I fell in love with for the US, and then moved into the Symphony umbrella. Um, and then kind of became obsessed with network businesses, moving over to Collective Eye, the largest network of sales data, before starting with Reload to try to build out the, the largest network of independent recruiters and labor market data. And so that's where I'm at today. Well, so, you know, we're, uh, you know, we're RevOps with a edge, edge with an edge. And uh, I'd love to dig deeper edge. I'd love to dig deeper into that. The, you know, the international operations component there. It just always fascinated me about you, um, uh, Vinny. Tell me more about that. You know, what was that like jumping in? You didn't know anything about, you know, operations, but you had this data mining background and sort of the Swiss army knife of experience and you're uprooting your young family to Scot- uh, you know, Scotland. Uh, what, what was that like? What were some of the learnings that you pulled out of that? So w- one of the mentors I had early on was a CEO of a Fortune 5 company. And one of the pieces of advice he provided me early on was try to do as many different things within a company if you want to progress your career. You know, you always want to be growing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the typical path to go from manager, director, VP, this. Go for breath because that'll give you the best options for not only what are you good at, but what you like doing. Because I think that's important for young leaders to understand is, what are you actually interested in doing? Not what just what are you capable of? And so the more things that you experience, the more you'll get there. But on the international front, the other piece of advice was assume absolutely nothing and pretend you know nothing for the first 60 to 90 days in that role. And so I think they, the, the, the teams were expecting somebody to come in and just try to rock the world and change everything. And really what I came in to do is just focus on listening because mm-hmm. I needed to understand the nuances because some of the stuff I, I, I could assume off the bat. And so that whole international business was an amalgamation of acquisitions. And so what one country did was different than another country did, was different than another country did. We had a lot of different products and a lot of different business models all trying to be combined into really this U.S. framed business. And so as you can imagine, a lot of those individual stakeholders, the managing directors of each of those businesses, those countries, the individuals that we're working with were just saying things like, this doesn't work. This can't work. We don't operate this way. And so you had to take a step back and go, all right, so where do we find the balance between having a consistent unified global business, but then also the nuances for that individual country to be able to deliver what we're expecting to deliver. And so that was just a process that you work through, but it's a collaborative effort. It's never a top-down approach that you, you can find success with from an operational standpoint. Because usually the people that are doing the jobs every day, support, success, fulfillment, implementation, know what's going on a heck of a lot better than any of the leaders to be able to give you that feedback and then devise a strategy that leadership's bought into and you can execute against, but you'll also get buy-in from the team. I think there's one thing to note, KG, is the career builder international um, strategy was completely 
defragmented. A lot of these, uh, comp each country was almost operating in their own environment where very little, it wasn't, we weren't really a global operation. So there are two, so for the listeners at home, there's there's global SaaS companies, there's global, you know, where you're, you're sort of uh, centralized uh, strategy dictation and stuff like that, but this is what we're gonna do and this is our pricing. And, and there are minor tweaks that occur. At CareerBuilder, it was almost like wild, wild west. Each, each entity sort of handled their own governance. Um, and sometimes we would throw the CareerBuilder name up there, but a lot of times, especially like in France, we had, you know, um, uh, Le Judie and, Le Judie. and all these, yeah. Where, you, you know, we, we never really changed the, the, the brand at all. And, and the leader sort of ran it like it's still their own business, even though they're operating. Are there pros and cons to that, Jamie? Are there like, you know, I think and, there, and Vinny, I, like the centralized think, versus decentralized and fragmented, well, like what are the pros and cons there? I, I think it depends on what you're selling. So to Jamie's point, we were not like Salesforce. So Salesforce, you have a global product where you're selling a CRM where the nuances are things like process language and it's customization, maybe some configuration uh, that's part of the process. We had unique products that were only sold in Greece. We had unique products that were only sold in Sweden. We had unique products that were only sold in Germany. And then we had some unified things that we were trying to build across the board that were truly globalized. And so as you can imagine, you have different varying levels of adoption. Some countries get more excited about their local products. Some get excited about the, the, the globalized products. But they ultimately want what they want. But as a global business, you've got to balance that local need and ask with what's going on around them to say the broader business has to focus on this thing because this is the future of the company. And so we can't necessarily focus as much proactive effort on this little product that's a small semblance of that business. Yeah, but the yeah. pro is if you're ever at a point where you want to consider uh, M&A moves, where you think about siphoning off certain portions of the business, it certainly makes it a lot easier if you're not selling that unified product. Yeah, you also got to think into account data, you know, your data, but a lot of countries have different data rules on, on what they, and a lot of companies, every company has their own sort of, uh, even in America has their own sort of preference on how they want to share and interact with data, but it becomes more complex in other countries, especially Germany. Germany is probably one of the uh, uh, most strict in terms of how they want to get sold and how they want the data to interact than I think any other country I've, I've dealt with. But yes, you always have to think on, of those Jamie, types that, of aspects. Spot on. And that was right at the peak of GDPR coming into existence. So I was deeply involved with getting things set up from a GDPR compliance standpoint when we had no idea what it is. Um, and now in the U.S., we see similar laws coming into play with the, the CCPA, the California uh, Consumer Privacy Act. And so I would venture to say that eventually we'll probably have some ubiquitous thing across the board with the U.S., but uh, the, the nature of Americans and data privacy, we just don't care as much. I've had my identity hacked and just said, oh, whatever, I'll pay a couple hundred bucks to get it fixed clear my name, good to go. And I still put everything on Google and leave it auto, uh, ready to go. And so I think we're all somewhat guilty of that. But those other countries, they are big time advocates of consumer privacy. They don't want that, yeah. that, that information shared. So even those battles of the, the cultural norms are massive. We were selling a product at the time called Recruitment Edge, which was largely a, a publicly sourced database of candidates. And we really wanted to push that into the European markets. 
but it was resisted so much because of the way that data was acquired that we really had to communicate that back to the U.S. business to say, this won't fly here because of how this information is acquired and the cultural norms that exist in these places. Let's talk customer success, guys. I love it. When did, when did customer uh, success become a thing? If you want the history lesson, a lot of people say Salesforce started it, but there, there was a company called Vantiv in the, the late 1900s for us historians here, where they, they hired a woman. I want to say her name was Mandy. I don't remember it off the top of my head, but she it was one of those early CRMs and she started the process and called these folks customer success advocates. I think it really came a thing when SaaS started to explode. Uh, and, and if you want to understand the why, we, we could all sit here and say it's the empathy of we want to make sure that our customers have an amazing experience. But I think the, the, the broader answer is that when you're looking for VC money, if you've got an 80% renewal rate, companies don't get that excited about investing in you. And so if you've got a 98% renewal rate and 150% uh, net renewal rate when you add in for upsells and things like that, that investment money gets really, really excited. And all the sales guys on the call, what's the number one thing you hear salespeople complain about right now? Can't get people on the phone. It's really hard to get meetings and it's only getting harder. I saw a, a stat that I think it was Outreach or Sales Loft put out that the average connect rate right now is only about three to 5%. Mm -hmm. Connect rate not even conversation rate with an actual buyer. And so a lot of the tactics that we grew up using, obviously we've tried to operationalize it and add in a lot of technology to the stack. But the, the, the point is, if we get a customer, we have to keep them. We have to make sure they're happy and do everything possible. So it, it's, it's still a rather new field in the grand scheme of things. You know, you, you could argue that you know, Gainsight really did a great job of monetizing the customer success space by building out their platform and building mm -hmm. avenues for the mm -hmm. group, the professional, the function. But right now, a lot of the innovation is still just on optimizing some of the early ideas of Health Score 360, uh, making sure that everything's streamlined, unified, and really defining the role. So that, that's why I think it's important and, and maybe where we're at today with that. What came first, hunter or farmers or customer success? I would so think Hunter I think, Farmers, I'm just, you know, we're getting history yeah, lessons Yeah, I think here. Hunter Farmer comes first because, you know, the customer success purist would argue that they're not selling. They're truly focused on advocacy. And so you'd still have an account manager or relationship manager that's managing the actual renewal upsell. And that customer success professional is truly just focused on almost project managing that account to make sure that that adoption's there, the satisfaction's there, and anything that is going awry or that central point of contact to herd the internal cats, as well as communicate back to the customer what's going on, but identify and tee up those opportunities for the relationship manager when there are potential upsells or cross-sells. What, what's Big the primary question. metric against which your customer success reps are, are measured, Vinny? Logo retention, dollar retention. Logo customer retention and dollar. So, it, yeah, yes. so that's, is that- So they're not compensated on it, but yet they're judged on it, right? Or, or how does that work? Because that's the biggest question of a customer success rep. You say, hey, you're not in charge. You don't, you're not really carrying a quota, but then at the end of the day, they're getting paid on renewal and retention, they are carrying the quota. Just, just the retention piece. So their job is to keep the customer. We want you to keep status quo. I'm not worried if you get one additional dollar extra, just keep these customers happy. That is what your focus is. That is the sole metric in addition with customer satisfaction. 
And so I think you add in a lot of qualitative metrics to a good CS comp plan. So a lot of organizations will focus like we are on, hey, a part of your bonus is tied to, to getting success stories, advocacy, the things that you can put on your website that we all want as sellers to say, when the customer says, send me information, who have you worked with? Who's the good success story? Having customer success as the advocate to gather that information can be incredibly helpful for the sales team and the business holistically. It doesn't the customer success rep, so here's, I'm just diving into that. A customer success rep gets, let's say they have 20 accounts that they're helping manage. And one of those accounts that they inherited was just sold incorrectly, implemented incorrectly. It's never going to renew no matter how much they try. That customer success rep could be one of your best customer success reps. Definitely. They're going to be penalized off of that, right? Because they're focused purely on retention and that that could be the largest account that's not going to retain, right? So that, there's always this, this really tough line to draw with a customer success rep because I always feel like customer success reps want to be paid like a sales rep in a way. But then when the bad news occurs, they want protection off of that bad news. And it's like, guys, we, we've got to figure out I know this is probably a Chad Albrecht question, but we we got to figure out how do we how do we do this? If you want to get paid like a sales rep and carry on some risk, you're going to have to take that inherited risk. Remember, we we went from classified advertising to software, so when we took we took a swing at the plate. You had to transform these uh, new logo. Well, new logo wasn't even the term back then; it was just new business. Okay, we had to scramble get new business in advertising business. And then we had to take those customers and transform them into software customers. Okay. So we put these people in place just to keep an eye on the accounts to make sure that they would renew. We didn't even have anything that, you know, the comp plan back then, we didn't have anything to compare it to. So we had, uh, Carney came up with the Engageometer. It would be a, a combination of metrics that you go to the client that said, hey, you spent 50 grand on this and here's 200 grand in return that we can show you. Let's just say you're, uh, an automated e automatic email sent to somebody, there was a value to it, right? And then we would just pay uh, the success people just based on that metric. Did you help the customer get a return on their investment by these metrics here? That lasted what? Uh, not even a year and it went away. But I think that's because uh, it's nice to be able to go to a customer and say, look, the, you know, that you, you gave us this, we, we return that. Is it a good investment? Is that enough profit for you? Yes or no. If not, well, I don't believe it or I need to see more. At least you have, you know, a dialogue to make sure the customers are getting the money. That was my first swing at the plate, guys. You know, uh, what I do they do now, Carney? Well, to talk about that, I mean, you need to have a product that renews to have a successful customer success team, right? If your product is not renewing, um, no matter how much you spin up a comp plan, if it's not renewing, I would say at an 85% clip or better, um, no matter what comp plan you're writing in, you better just put them on a bonus plan um, because it's going to be rough. rough what, what, what is the current uh, renewal rate that people are using these days? For software, from the investment you want guy. to be above eighty-five percent. Now with cloud, it's usually one-year deals. They might be a little bit less, depending on the size. But you usually want to sell all deals as three-year deals as much as possible. And well, what's the percentage that you look at? What do you say, Vinny? We got you on the show. You're the guest. Eighty percent's got to be the minimum benchmark. 
But if you're looking for a top tier, it's 95 plus percent for a good 90, 95. Okay. 95. That's, that's logo retention, not net revenue. Retention. Logo retention. Correct. That, that's right. Logo retention. Logo retention. Correct. And, and Jamie, a couple of thoughts on the, the model there and the, the pay plan, because I, I think there's a couple of things that you can unpack there based upon where an organization is in its evolution. And so to, to the comment about, you know, a lot of customer success people want to be paid like salespeople. I'm not sure that's the right comp plan. And so if I look at a good CS comp plan, it's paid more like a project manager where it's kind of that 75-25 base to bonus role with that 25% largely being tied half to company performance and the other half being tied to those individual metrics. And so that eliminates those outliers where you're not going to have those major upside swings like a sales rep. But if you're in that situation where you're, you've acquired an account that for whatever reason is just failing miserably for things outside your control, it isn't going to put you in the poorhouse. And I think that's important for executives and leadership to consider when they're designing comp plans based upon where that organization actually is and its evolution. The second point there is, how, how engineered is the sales process to understand the steps from the entire customer journey so that things have been seamlessly transitioned to customer success? So with the invent of technologies like Chorus and Gong, we've been able to kind of implement, and I've seen best practice where every step of that sales process is captured for review. And even from a RevOps standpoint, you're see, seeing organizations capture the wow moment or the aha moment, put that into Salesforce and then do things like, what were those pain point moments? That's transitioned to the customer success rep so that they can embed that into the kickoff call, embed it into the process so that that customer truly feels like they're being heard. And so, you know, one of the ideas or questions is always, what's like, what are you innovating? What's being innovated in customer success? And a lot of it were, are those things we talked about, but I think the biggest innovations are actually happening pre-sale. And so one of the things that we've been able to garner in one of the technologies or processes that I've seen work really well is this notion of having demos that are clickable, fully able to, to engage with during the sales process. So we, we've leveraged a technology called Reprise. Uh, probably the best example, if you wanted to go look at it being adopted, would be Pendo. So I think we're all familiar with Pendo and the customer experience side of things. Pendo is one of those places where if you look at customer experience in a SaaS product, that's where customer success innovators are really leaning into to say, what is the experience that we're actually viscerally seeing within our product? And how do we then deploy that to get the outcomes we're looking for? Relay that to the product team. Use that from an engineering perspective to say, are the behaviors that we're expecting our customers to see actually matching that? But going back to this notion of reprise, which is an application that's designed to have dynamic demos that are clickable, usable, put them on your website, share them ahead of time. So instead of a static deck, I can send ahead of time, hey, we talked about this great labor market data. Here's a click through. Here's an example of how to do this. And then all that information's tracked so we can see where did the eyeballs gravitate? Did it focus on where we expect mm -hmm. them to? Did things get missed? And then we can embed that in the sales process. So the more behavior yeah. you can actually have interaction with your customer at the earliest stage possible, the more that you can design a customer journey that leads to the outcomes you're hoping for. So the, the guys at HubSpot, as you know, Vinny, you know, they, they were, uh, what are they, Har Harvard guys, MIT guys? Uh, yeah, Harvard. Mark Roberts, yeah, stage, yeah. Uh, yeah. That's right. And Mark, Mark told me that one of the biggest insights that they gained um, after, you know, signing up thousands of customers was that the biggest predictor of churn happened in the pre-sale, in the sale, sale and pre-sale process before they actually oh. signed the check. 
which they placed a lot of that burden on the salesperson uh, from a comp plan, you know, perspective. But what you're what you're emphasizing, of course, is that customer success starts before they actually sign the contract. Is what you're saying? Yes, you are 100% correct. Yeah, exactly. And and of course, we always talk about you know like. What Jamie was saying, like, ah, this account was not sold correctly, correctly. and misset expectations yeah. and, and, and all that kind of stuff there. Amen, brother. <laughs> like, it's got to be like working together. You can't just like sell it and throw it over the transom and say, you know, good effing luck, you know. Um, so right on, right on. It is a team. It's always a team environment, right? The, the sales rep needs to be involved in that whole environment and a real sales rep a lot of these companies a real sales rep needs to know that they want to go back to that well multiple times and upsell right upsell new products upsell this the only way to do that is set the right expectations so when the wrong expectations are set usually that sales rep is no longer here and then the customer sits that person suffers well for the, always, for the for the new reps out there okay get a get a pen and paper okay ready Anybody can sell anything to anybody once. Continue, Kearney. Well, one of, one of the things I was going to say is the reason why I feel like a lot of customer success people want sales comp plans, but they're not sales guys, is because a lot of customer success comes from a lot of the people that go there to lead customer success because it is sort of an evolving, even though it's been around for about 10 years, officially are former sales leaders that are used to hunting, right? I always think if I was going to go and recruit for this, and this is for anybody listening that's sort of newer, um, renewal reps are a great spot because that's really where they're focused on. They're, they're more farmers. Don't go for the hunters because the hunters always want to get paid a lot more. And then when they go to customer success, they always want that, that advantageous uh, comp plan, which is sort of, anti what the customer success role is for. Spot on. The, the, the best advice I can give people that are thinking about a career in customer success is customer success is not sales without cold calling. If that's what you're envisioning this as, you're going to be in for a rude awakening and it's not going to be the right fit for you. Yeah. And the problem is a lot of smaller companies go, you know, we need better success. Our renewal rates are bad. Let's take some of these great reps and throw them out of our customer success. And, and then it just becomes a complete crap show. And that goes back to the point about the comp plans and everything else that you were mentioning before, Jamie, and I think Pete, you alluded to it well, when, when, you're, when you're thinking about scaling a business, you got to stop and do that exercise of what are all the things that need to happen in our customer journey? Every little task down to the last darn detail, and then figure out, great, now what role should actually own each of these tasks? And then put together the org chart to say, how does this customer life cycle, where's the shared services sides that actually ties together with this journey that we want to take our customers on and then figure out, do we have names that can fill the void internally for those roles? Do we need to hire externally? Because I think where most organizations fail self-admittedly is we just force people into roles and no way, shape or form were they the right fit for that. Sometimes we yeah. can fake it till we make it. But for the most part, we skip that step of actually examining, doing the research to say, here's everything that needs to happen. Now let's build the roles around that. We just say, let's just build the role because we think this is the right thing to do without that exercise of actually stopping and figuring out what should this process look like. Yeah, success, what I've seen is if you're going to lose a sales rep, you might want to give them a shot, some type of rotation plan to get them in success versus 
training somebody to work at another company. What did you do, KG? Did you have any uh, success types over there? We had uh, a massive customer service team that was led originally by the uh, the great Joseph Bocanegra. Um, interestingly enough, this guy was a data and analytics person, Vinny, in uh, in Scottsdale, and uh, and he just he knew the numbers cold. And we had him take over and scale the customer service team. Um, I then was fortunate to have to pluck him over to lead the enterprise customer success team at uh, at ZipRecruiter, and you know, just like a marine, like this guy dro- dropped him in, and just like you said, like the first ninety days, he he listened and listened. And then he implemented the plays and, and how to how to make it right. Now, the metric that we were interested in, of course, for our customer success team, Vinny, logo retention after X amount of time. And uh, and so everything that he did, everything from an operational perspective, from a process perspective, from a hiring perspective was all about uh, all about optimizing towards that uh, towards that number based on the cohort of customers that were brought in at that particular time, and and it was and this dude mechanized the living shit out of it. I loved it. I think in check check boxes, you know, Jamie, you're an operations guy. You know, I think in you know check boxes. There's a great book uh, out there called The Checklist Manifesto. And he built out this entire, God, what was it called in Salesforce? There was a, there was a, a way to build out a whole flow of, um, God, I can't think of the name of it, in Salesforce, where one flows. thing led to another. What was it called? Flows, probably. And maybe it was flows, yes. Built it out. And so, just like you said, we, uh, Vinny, we, we architected out what we believed should be the customer experience in the first X period of time. And then he built out the flows in a checklist fashion so that every customer, at the time, I think there was 30, 40 people on the customer success team and uh, architected out what that checklist should look like. At this point in time, they should have, the, the customer should have this experience. At this point in time, the customer success rep should do these types of things. And, and uh, you know, Vinny, right out of your playbook, man. Right out and, of your plate. And I think that certainly the pandemic, but the, the notion of shifting more to a virtual operation KG forces process. So if I think what's the biggest opportunity that's come about from this for organizations is forcing that process, forcing that design. So even if you want to keep it as simple as the sales process, everything has to be documented. Everything has to be technologically solved in some way, shape or form, because we don't have that benefit of, you know, walking over to Pete's desk and yelling because something happened or trying to understand. And so when you're onboarding new reps, new leaders, 100% virtually, you're forced to do those things that most organizations neglect, which is that documentation of process so that you could literally hand the playbook to somebody off the streets and say, Here's how you do your job. Let me know what questions there are because it should all be there, documented in a streamlined, cohesive way. Vinny, how can we uh, help you get business? How can we plug you? What do you want us to uh, talk about? How can people get a hold of you? How can you make money off of us? Yeah, I mean, the, the right customer for us. So again, what Reload's built is the largest network of independent recruiters and labor market data. 
So our customers use us to, to find people ultimately, but also leverage us for information to guide their internal recruiting strategy. And so our customer base is a lot of high growth healthcare companies. And so uh, Ready Responders would be an example of company that Google Ventures back company needed to hire 400 responders. Well, when we've built the, the in essence, the Instacart or DoorDash for recruiting, we can tap into this network of 4,000 plus recruiters to refer candidates in and hit those hiring goals in a fast measure. So what we've done in the last 18 months is really grow beyond healthcare into growth companies. And so our sweet spot is that 50 to 500 person company that might not have a fully baked recruiting team that is looking for scale because we are there to, to answer the questions early on, help their team grow um, and ultimately have success. So if there's growth companies struggling for ways to find people or don't have answers to the questions like, why can't I find these people or what's going on in the market around us? our information set can answer a lot of those questions and we can ultimately help them find those people as well. We got a new segment called sales tip. Is that the name of it, KG? Sales yeah, tip? Three, three minute sales tip, something like that. I don't know. Vinny will probably okay. talk for six minutes, but you know. Well, whatever. no, no. TikTok only lets you have three. So we got to keep it at three. What's the topic, KG? Critical listening? Yeah, Vinny, what do you got for us? So the, the, uh, you know, the, the tip that you'd give to your team that you'd want to lay on our, uh, our listeners now. Critical listening is the most important skill, especially for any seller. So the easy metric that you can look at there is what is your talk to listen ratio? It should always be greater than 50% in the client's favor. And so a, a tactic that you can actually deploy to craft this systemically stems from our old pal, Thomas Edison. So does anybody know how Thomas Edison used to interview people or what his tactic was? What was it? He would take everybody to lunch and give them a bowl of soup and put salt and pepper next to that bowl of soup. And what do you think he was looking to see if they'd do? Would they use the salt and pepper? He was looking to see if they'd use the salt and pepper before they tried the soup. And he wouldn't hire anybody that put salt and pepper in the soup before they tasted it because he knew those people were drawn to assumptions. And so what this stems is, you have to put together a process to actually reverse your assumptions and eliminate those from the bat. And so the easiest process to follow is really a couple of steps is you come up with whatever your rationale or reason is. So let's say, for example, we're talking a lot about success here. So it's a renewal. The, the, the problem statement you're making is there is no chance this customer is going to renew. What you want to do is actually write down the opposite of that outcome. And so in that case, it would be there's a 100% chance this customer is going to renew. And then you come up with three baked ideas that you can come up with to actually execute that goal. What are those three baked ideas? Hey, we don't have the right stakeholders involved. So we need to come up with a strategy to, to engage this executive team. Hey, they haven't used the product. So let's do some existing trainings with the group to get them doing more. Um, hey, I actually just don't have that great of a relationship and I don't really know what's going on. So let's leverage the account team to do more. Then pick one of those fully baked ideas, execute against it. And what you'll find is you, you will reverse your assumption. What that does is embed that process of critically listening because you're listening for those statements. And then as a good seller, as a good problem solver, you'll come up with what the opposite of that is and execute against a lot more than those and then you won't. Vinny, what's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you? You got any links you want to take? Give us some URLs. 
Yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, uh, Vinny Chalawa. It's your typical LinkedIn URL, uh, backslash Vincent Chalawa. If you want to see me rant about uh, the Chicago Cubs or Wisconsin Badgers recruiting or random NFTs, you can also find me at Twitter at, at Vincent Mark C. And we will have all the links no in the podcast. No thanks on that Twitter. I don't need to hear about either Wisconsin or uh, the Cubs. Thanks for listening to the Sassholes. On behalf of Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, we thank you for listening. We ask that you give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Subscribe to our newsletter. The link will be in the podcast notes. And you can always buy us a beer on Patreon slash Sassholes. We thank you for listening. Cue the music. Welcome to Sassholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are Revenue Ops with a... Edge. Jamie, <laughs> Jamie, Jamie, I think that edge needs a little sharpening. Jamie, edge. Jason, Kate. I got an edge. <laughs> I thought there was more than me saying edge. We are Revenue Ops with a... Edge. Jamie, Jason, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Today, our guest is Vinny Chalawa. Did I say it right, Vinny? Probably the first time in my lifetime. You must have grown up on the south side of Chicago in a Polish neighborhood because that's what that nationality is. So, <laughs> so, so that's a yes. A, you got it. Spot on. Spot on. Chalawa. Vinny, Chalawa. Hey. you a south sider. Are you a Sox fan then? You watch the game in a, in a I am a diehard Cubs fan, and I'm all I'm getting is text messages about this controversy between Cusack and the White Sox people, and I have no idea what the heck's going on. But I am an advocate. Barstool, really sports, Barstool so. got owned. Ah. Barstool yeah, well, went after him and said, "You can't be doing this," and now he is. Uh, it's pretty amazing, actually. I'm a Southsider, and I'm a Sox fan. Um, and I hate the Cubs, but no one can rip on my Cubbies. Unless you're from Chicago and the South Side. Um, yeah, my, my dad grew up on 47th and Costner, so I remember with my grandfather looking at the uh, the airplanes flying overhead going Oh, midway. man. Uh, so, yeah. oh, so that means, are you a fan of Vito and Nick's or Nick and Vito's? Yeah, who Pizza? is it? Who yeah, is it? It's the best. It was uh, Vito and Nick's when I was growing up, and then Nick bought out Vito, or took more of a chair, and they flipped it to Nick and Vito's. Pretty I, I must admit, as I've gotten older and traveled more, I'm a sucker for New Haven pizza in comparison to Chicago. That New, Fa- New Haven style is definitely the way to go, but uh, the Chicago pizza will always have a place in my heart. Was it Sa- Sally a pizza? Sally's a pizza. pizza. Yeah. Have best pizza I ever had in my entire life, for God's sakes. Life changing. Oh, it, it really is. I, somebody told me about that. Did we? Are we doing this thing? Pete, are we doing this thing? Are we? I, I'm just letting the, you guys go. Hopefully, we're we the get pizza it. holes. We should change the pizza holes. We were. The pizza hey, holes. it's the White Sox got a big game in about an hour and a half. Two hours, actually. Oh, they're gonna lose. They're gonna lose their ass. Uh,